0: This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm Pia Chattapat. I welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, November 12th on CBC Radio. Barbara Streisand wants to set the record straight. The legendary singer and actor says misconceptions about her have pervaded her six-decade career. So now, she's telling her own story in her own words. In just a few moments, I'll speak with the one and only Barbara Streisand about how she sees herself and why she's stepping out of the spotlight. After that, we'll turn our attention to the Israel-Hamas war and how Canada is balancing foreign policy with the conflict's ripple effects here at home. The acclaimed Crete artist Kent Monkman has long featured his alter ego in his visual work. He'll be by to tell us why now's the time to give Miss Chief Eagle Testicle her own origin story. And later, our Sunday documentary will spotlight the often overlooked role of Canadian peacekeepers in the Vietnam War. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. From singing on Brooklyn Stoops as a kid to starring on Broadway and the big screen, few have had a career as expansive and as impressive as Barbara Streisand. Now at 81, the singer, actor and director is telling her own story for the very first time in a new memoir. It is called My Name is Barbara. And one of the first things Barbara Streisand wants you to know is that you've quite likely been mispronouncing her name for years. It's Streisand, or she says, like sand on the beach, not Zand with a Z. Barbara Streisand goes far beyond that though into so many facets of her life. Her early days growing up without her father who died when she was a baby, and with a single mom who constantly criticized her. Her music career began at 17 when she entered a singing contest at a local bar and blew the audience away with her vocal range.
1: Happy
2: days are here again. The skies above are clear again.
0: Barbara Streisand soon caught the attention of theater fans when she scored her first leading role on Broadway playing the tenacious Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl.
1: Me not to fly I simply got to if someone takes a spill, it's me and not you who told you are allowed to rain on my
0: parade. she made a name in Hollywood in the 1970s and 80s starring in hits like the way we were and a star is born and directing the classic Yentl.
1: Papa can you see me papa can you find me
0: in the night For the past several years, after two films she wanted to direct were turned down, Barbara started writing instead about her six decades in showbiz and about the misconceptions she wants to correct about herself. To me, Barbara Streisand seems like one of the last of her kind, a megastar of a bygone entertainment world who crosses generations, transcends mediums, has often been talked about, but less so talked about herself. She seems so omnipresent, so unknowable, that I wasn't quite sure exactly what to expect in a conversation with her. But lucky me, I got a chance to find out just a few days ago. So, here is my Canadian broadcast exclusive interview with the one and only Barbara Streisand. Hi.
1: Hi, nice to have you in (laughs) Canada. What a delight. Well, I love Canada. What do you love about it? Well, there are less people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love Montreal, the Frenchness of it, and the architecture. Um, I just, the people I know there are just very lovely. Well, we're so happy that you're with us.
0: Let's talk about your book. You've had a massive career spanning six decades. You've been the subject of more than a few biographies. So why now, Barbara? Why did you decide that now was the time for you to
1: sit down and tell your own story, write a memoir? I did it because I couldn't get two pictures made. If I could have made my pictures, which take about, let's say, two and a half years each, there actually was a third picture I would have liked to make too. Um, I don't think I would have ever written a book because I really don't like to relive my life. You know, I like to be in the moment, looking possibly to the future, but just like to inhabit the day, you know? Hmm. I have to say, in reading your memoir, you're ability
0: for recall and memory in detail is just astounding. I know you relied on some of your journals,
1: but it's just astounding to me. Do you just have a great memory? No, I don't. I don't think I do. As a matter of fact, I have to look myself up. And I have an editor who looks me up for certain factual things and when things happen. And even if, you know, I find out today what year I did such and such, I'll forget it tomorrow. So, No, it was hard to write a book, actually. yeah, You make it
0: very clear at the beginning um, that you want to set the record straight about your own life story. There have been a lot of misconceptions, you say. What do you want people to know about your life that you say there have been misconceptions about?
1: Well, the negative stuff. I mean, whatever negative stuff that I'm... I'm certainly not a diva. What's a diva anyway? A diva is an opera singer... Who has an entourage following her, maybe, as I've seen in the movies whenever they portray divas, It's just not me. I'm down to earth um I like simplicity, i don't uh, I mean simplicity, nothing simple. I like to be quiet, I've never relived my life before. I never listened to my music, I don't watch my movies. So um, I like to be with my grandchildren and my son, my husband, you know, good friends, like most people.
0: Hmm. You talk about being described as a diva. One assumption that comes up throughout your your life, but in this book, is that you have this, you know, quote, obsession to take control of whatever projects you're involved with. Tell me how you see when people say, oh, she's
1: controlling, what, what, what you're really after in those moments. Well, The different perception, the language, the descriptions of men versus women who want to be in control. And it was a speech I did in 1992. Let's see, let let me lead into it. Language gives us an insight into the way women are viewed in a male dominated society. A man is commanding while a woman is demanding. A man is forceful, but a woman is pushy. A man is uncompromising. I mean, that's, you know, to be heralded, while a woman is a ball breaker. A man is a perfectionist, but a woman's a pain in the ass. He's assertive. She's aggressive. She He shows leadership while she's controlling. He's committed. She's obsessed. He's persevering. She's relentless. He sticks to his guns while she's stubborn. You see what I mean? I mean, I wrote that in 1992, and this is more than, uh nine, ten, what is it? 30 years? years. 30 years. 30 years. Oh, my God. It's 30 years later. And we're still talking about a woman who wants control. It's really such a shame, isn't it? And there's,
0: you know, Ball Break and Barbara Streisand. There you are saying, look, you know, I owned it. I'm, I, I was going to own it. I wasn't going to take it. I was going to be a woman who... Stood up in all the ways that you describe women are standing up but seen as differently. And yet, Barbara, you talk about the memoir so much. And I, I think this, I don't know, will surprise people about how vulnerable you are. You talk about your, how self conscious you were. I imagine maybe you still are about certain things. What everyone's vulnerable, but where does your vulnerability come from?
1: Oh. How to grow old gracefully, just feelings you know that get hurt easily. it was fun for me to write about the process of things, how I came to certain decisions artistically uh what that was like the because that's exciting to talk about myself is not exciting to me <laughs> I mean I mean, I guess people it's just i, I it's again the m- misunderstanding of what women are like or uh i'm not that different from other women i don't think except that i have these ideas inside my head you know that i that i find interesting <laughs>
0: You write that the first time you felt the spotlight on your face early in your singing career, you found it quote warm and comforting because you couldn't see the faces of the audience, right? Right. And, and I've heard you say before, look, I don't sing at home. I'm not like just going to dash off a tune like I'm a singing monkey if you're asking me to. But you, that you still get nervous when you're out there. Do you, all these years later, you're still you were still nervous when you got on stage.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting. there was a man in the audience, one of the last shows I ever did, and he was a tiny little figure, and I could see the people's faces in the front row, unfortunately, and he never applauded after the songs so i'll i'll f I'll figure out, okay, now I get obsessed by what he's thinking, what didn't he like? I felt so bad, but I didn't want to see someone's face who didn't applaud. I'm thinking, well, I really get curious about what they didn't like, and I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to think beyond the song, but unfortunately, the reality, you know, has you thinking about everything. There is
0: one person in particular um, who fueled, as you talked about your vulnerability and your self-consciousness as you grew up and became famous. You write a lot about your mom, Diana, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, your relationship with her um, through the years, which was trying, I think that's fair to say. But then there's a gift you received for your birthday just last year. Yeah, Yeah, your mom died 20 years ago, but this friend found an unfinished painting she commissioned in the 80s, and a message that came with it. Will you just tell me that story?
1: Yeah, in other words, I never knew my father. And I would have loved to know more about him like when I was a baby. My my mother didn't talk about him. And I one day said, but I, I want to know about my father. I said to her, why didn't you ever tell me about him? And she said, I didn't want you to miss him. You know, it, to me, it was illogical. So when this present came on my 80th birthday, a, a painting that my mother had Asked someone to paint, I guess. And it came with a letter. And the letter was from a friend of hers from many, many years ago, obviously a woman she confided in. And the letter told me about some of the conversations with my mother, where my mother actually admitted not only was she jealous of me after I became famous, but she was even jealous of me as a baby. When my father came home, my mother describes, and he wouldn't even take off his coat before he wanted to hold me, and he would sing to me, and he would dress me, and he would carry me around facing forward, so he, he said, I want her to see what she's facing in the world, or some, something like that. That gave me a, a look into my very first months of life. That gave me the feeling I did have a father who loved me, even when I was a little baby. And it made me feel more whole. And what I couldn't understand was when this woman said to my uh, my mother, were you jealous then when she was a baby? And my mother said, yes. That's interesting to me. I mean, that that jealousy began so young toward me. It makes sense. It, it makes sense to me now.
0: It's also complicated, right? To reconcile the life you had with her, and then hearing that and knowing that.
1: Yeah, because I wish she had told me that herself, you know, because my mother loved him. And that's right. I, the, the word she said, he watched my father manny short for emmanuel kissed barbara on her neck and my mother said after that the way he used to kiss me wow that's so intimate it's such a, a look into her sadness how do you see her now knowing all that i feel bad for her as i say at the end of the book i you know she had she had a wonderful voice my mother had a talent. She had a pretty face. She, But she never wanted me to go into show business. And I think because she was frustrated herself, you know, she would sing at the drop of a hat at any kind of wedding, bar mitzvah, whatever. I was shy. and I couldn't get up and sing in front of people, really, as I got older, especially.
0: You're one of the small group of artists in the world that's received an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, a Tony over the course of your career. You're an egot winner. You say you're quote rather ordinary. You said at the beginning, "I'm just, I'm just like you, P. I'm just a regular person." But how do you reconcile these two Barbaras, the Jewish kid from Brooklyn who enjoys coffee flavored ice cream and going to the dentist, and this larger than life Barbara Streisand we all know?
1: I can't. Mm. I can't. I can't put that in words. I'm. I mean artists, they paint alone. They paint alone. Writers write alone. And then there's another level of performing. Now, the performing level, I don't enjoy. I like to work on the show. I like to design the show. I like to pick my songs. I like to pick the set. You know, I, I, like, I like that. But the actual performing of it, night after night, as you can see. I mean, I've never, I think I've done what, 93 shows in my whole career and, you know, years and years of performing. So I just don't enjoy doing the same thing night after night. That's why I never went back on the stage. That's why I love movies. You finish a scene and then you go on to the next scene.
0: And I just don't want anyone to mishear you, Barbara Streisand, because you you make a point of this many times in the book, that despite you not loving being on the stage and singing, you were very appreciative of your
1: fans. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love when they buy my records or came to see my shows. That's great. Of course. You know, I'm grateful for that. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's very hard to explain. Yeah, well, you do say that fame... Uh, can be a hollow trophy, yeah, I don't know what it means what to me, a happy life is having a family, a husband, children, my son, now grandchildren. I mean, that's my happiness at at friends who I love and and whom they love me, hopefully, you know they do love me that's why they're my friends, I mean, they're people I can talk to and tell secrets to. Uh, just like most people. Do you see what I mean? And then I have this other side that is mysterious to me as well. And you say, look, now I want to step away. I'm going to step out of the spotlight because
0: like so many people, family comes first. That's what I want to do. I want to surround myself with
1: my family and my friends. Is mm-hmm. this? Are you really stepping out? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll write another design book someday when I feel like, you know, if I'm too bored with reality or something. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. For now, I mean, 10 years writing a book, you know, mostly in my bed, never getting, you know, dressed up in real clothes. It was like, especially during COVID, it never went out for years. No, it'll be fun to see what's going on. And then probably... Go back to hibernating again. <laughs> I, I wonder that because also in your book, and we know
0: this about your life, you've you've been politically outspoken. You've talked about the issues of our time, climate change. You know, I don't have to tell you this. You live in you I live know. in this world. It's so
1: difficult. We have this war in the Middle East. We have Ukraine and Russia. That's we have right. Climate change. I mean, the world. I, I I bet you climate change has something to do with even people's emotions and. Breathing the wrong air and particles, you know, and destroying the forests that give us oxygen. We need oxygen. I don't know why people have the need to hate. Is that something that always has been? My husband and I watched a documentary the other night called Life on Our Planet. And it's like, you know, starting with the dinosaurs and so forth and how they always fought. You know, is that the nature of nature? I mean, is that how animals always were, you know, wanting to kill each other? I don't know. It really makes you think about man. You know, is man so different than the animal? I just find it so heartbreaking. You know, I just pray for sanity to prevail and uh, a de escalation of violence, you know? I mean, Life is so precious. And I think, uh, you know, I feel bad for the children, my grandchildren, because I don't know what this world is gonna look like in 20 years. I'm afraid of that. What do you want your legacy to be?
0: You've done so much, you've acted, you've directed, you've sang, you have sang, you
1: have worked in activism. I'm not trying to put you in the grave, Barbara. I'm just saying, what do you want us to say? No, no, no. no. I, I, believe me, I have a lot of philis, uh, philanthropy to still do. But um, I want to just walk out of the door and breathe the air and just be free. Free. I don't have to go to my bed to finish a book. I don't have to talk anymore about myself in interviews. I just can't do it. I can't even imagine when they propose that book. Tour, going to different <laughs> cities, and you charge people, you know, for a ticket to hear you talk about your book. I don't know. I can't imagine myself doing that. Packing, unpacking. It seems like all such a schlep, you know. Uh, no, I want to be free to do what I want to do each day until I can't stand, till I can't stand the boredom of it. And maybe I'll never get bored. Who knows? You know, it's hard. I think for a lot of people to reconcile
0: and and I get it for you. Like I get, like, I'm just Barbara. Like would everyone, what's the big deal everyone's making about me? Like, I know I'm good at what I do. I get that. I get that. But listening to you, um, you just sound like a regular person and I'm trying to reconcile.
1: I that am. I mean, I one am. of my best friends is a real estate person, you know? So we talk about everything. We talk about real estate. We talk about relationships. We talk about, I have, you know, girlfriends that we discuss clothes together, and then others who are philosophical and we cry together. I mean, I am a regular person. I just happen to have a bit of talent that communicates. <laughs> it communicates with people. What can I tell you? I'm just laughing at a bit. It. I'm just laughing at the modifier of a bit. <laughs> You sound you sound like a very nice person. Tell me about yourself. Are you married? Do you have children? I do. I have
0: I, I have. I um, have three kids. I'm married to another journalist. Wow. I have two ten year old oh. twin boys, identical twin boys, wow. and um, they're full of energy and lovely. And my daughter Jasmine, who is 13, and is a competitive gymnast and just a wonderful human. You know this about your kid, and your kids, and your grandkids. You know sometimes. You get lucky sometimes with what you're giving. You can build,
1: you can grow, and help make good citizens. But I've just really been blessed. Yeah. Wow! So tell me, see, I'm fascinated by twins, yeah, especially who look alike. You know, um, yeah. How do they get along? They get along. They're they're like they're
0: they're, jo- they're joined together like mentally. They're, they're so weird. If everyone asked me, like, what's it like to have twins? And I said, it's like a science experiment unfolding before your eyes. They're super sensitive
1: when one is in pain, the other is in pain. They do all these things. Um, that's, see, that's fascinating to me. I'm not so fascinating to myself. Yeah. I mean, who is? I'm not fascinating to myself either. <laughs> so when I'm asked, it's like, I can't describe you know, how come I can sing? Why do I have the vocal cords? Maybe from my mother and her mother who had a pretty voice. My sister has a pretty voice. You know, it's it's in the DNA again.
0: I want to ask you one question before I let you go. What, what, what games do you play on your phone when you're in bed?
1: I start with solitaire. Then I go to maybe backgammon if I still am up. But my favorite is gin, gin rummy. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And I do Wordle every night. That's fun. Do you do uh, connections? Back, what's connections? It's a new New York
0: Times puzzle. You have to, you get 16 words and they, they you have to join four of them together in groups. So maybe I'm giving you an example. Um, it might be coffee, tea, juice, water, and those would be in a group. It's much harder than that. You should try it connections tomorrow. And where
1: would I find that? You're going to Google connections. Yes,
0: right next to Wordle.
1: Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Because I have the app for my New York Times games. So okay, connections, I'm going to look into it. And the games free my mind, you know, from the day's calamities, what's going on in the world. Otherwise, I I couldn't sleep. All right. Nice talking to you. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara. Do take
0: good care of yourself and enjoy your time with your your family.
1: Give your children just a little hug
0: from me. Oh, gosh, I sure will.
1: Thank you. Okay. All All right. right, Take good care. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye.
0: That is my Canadian broadcast exclusive interview with the incomparable Barbara Streisand. Her new memoir is called My Name is Barbara. And by the way, if you're wondering why I asked her about what games she plays on her phone at bedtime, she writes about it in her memoir. She she talks about how it's her nightly ritual to help her unwind. See, just a regular person like you and me. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. I'm Pia Chattapadai. Just over a month since the start of the Israel-Hamas war began, the reverberations are being felt around the world, including here at home. We've seen pro-Palestinian demonstrations taking a place across our country, as well as rallies calling for the release of the hostages held by Hamas. There have been disturbing and violent incidents that are being investigated as possible hate crimes in Montreal and Toronto. All of this as the war rages on with countries around the world trying to stem the impact on civilians. G7 leaders have issued a joint statement calling for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Meanwhile, Canadians are among those in Gaza crossing into Egypt today. Well, joining me now are two people who've been paying close attention to how this conflict has been unfolding. Roland Paris is a professor and director of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, and Bijan Amadi is the executive director of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, that's a North American international affairs think tank. Good morning to you both. Good morning. morning Roland Paris, let me begin with you. So much has happened both internationally and here at home um, since this war Broke out. So when you think back to the start of this war on October 7th, could you have imagined, foreseen that a month and a bit later, this is where we'd be?
3: Well, it is so uh, dispiriting. Nobody has a crystal ball, but I have to say that among those who uh, follow international affairs and have followed events in the Middle East, uh, during that day on October 7th, that horrific. Uh, slaughter uh, conducted by Hamas. Uh, the future did unfold uh, immediately, and that future included a, uh, a an Israeli retaliation and military operation in Gaza that everybody who follows these things knew would be destructive, controversial, and this is exactly what's happened. Israel is attempting to defend itself uh, against. Uh, the military wing of of Hamas which has an army of about 30 or 40,000 well-armed people and they are completely integrated in a civilian population and that is the huge dilemma how can Israel defend itself without doing undue harm against civilians. Hmm.
0: Okay, let's talk about what's been been discussed a lot in the last number of days, um, uh, Bijan, and this is the calls and the growing calls for a ceasefire, and then there's calls for these humanitarian pauses in this conflict, and leaders around the world are, are, are careful to differentiate between these two. Why is that difference in language so important?
4: Um, Well, a call for a humanitarian pause is is not the same as a call for a ceasefire, for sure. Uh, Basically, uh, the United States, its uh, allies and partners, and uh, if we want to call it the Western Alliance, uh, so far, mainly uh, with the exception of perhaps uh, President Macron of France, they have refused to call for a ceasefire. Uh, For example, the G7 statement reaffirmed their position in uh, supporting the state of Israel's right to defend itself. But in, a, in another paragraph, it also focuses on the need for humanitarian aid uh, to, be, uh, to be sent to Gaza. It also focuses on the need for uh, humanitarian corridors, for respect for international humanitarian law, and also it calls for humanitarian pauses. It doesn't call for a ceasefire. So it doesn't basically call for a stop in this conflict at this stage. And I think one of the main reasons is that uh, they understand the United States perhaps has this view, has this position that what happened on October 7th in that terrorist attack was a significant blow to Israel's sense of security, to Israel's deterrent image in the region. And I believe that they understand that Israel will go to great extent to achieve its objectives here, which are to eradicate Hamas, at least from the governance of Gaza, and also to, uh, to, to eradicate their military capability. So they do not believe that Israel will at this point seize or stop this conflict. They think that they will continue this war till they achieve these objectives. And that's why they're advocating for these humanitarian pauses, rather than a complete halt of the conflict.
0: Okay, so Roland, um, you heard Bijan, they're referencing um, President Macron, who I think it was yesterday, it might have been Friday, was the first Western leader, I think, to, to say the word ceasefire and calling for one, saying this is, on the Israeli uh, military side, just gone too far and it is time to stop this. There have been a handful of conflicts, wars between Israel and Hamas. There have been ceasefires in previous conflicts. It's worked to stop the fighting in the short term. It certainly has not brought about a lasting peace. Politically, is there a case by Western leaders to make the call for a ceasefire and to push Israel? And how far can they push? Will they push?
3: Well, I think that um, even the United States has limited influence over the Israeli war cabinet right now. Clearly the most influential outside actor. But I don't think that we can... uh, overestimate, uh, or I don't think we should overestimate, the influence of outside actors on the Israeli government, which is determined to remove Hamas as a threat uh, on its border. But you're right. Eventually, there will be a cessation of hostilities. And we've been caught up in semantic debates about pauses and ceasefires and the like, but the the fundamental point is this, that uh, Canada, the United States, European countries, including Emmanuel Macron, who walked back his comments a little bit yesterday, all recognize that Israel does have a right to defend itself. But they also say that Israel has to conduct its military operations according to the laws of war. And it has to provide humanitarian assistance to civilian populations. And I think there's been growing concern about Israel's targeting practices in this uh, in this military operation, and frankly, horror at the scale of the uh, civilian suffering uh, in Gaza. So this is the needle that uh, that Western countries are trying to thread, and they're doing so by talking about pauses instead of a kind of open-ended ceasefire.
0: And, you know, as you said, this is what the calls have been. They've been growing. They've been happening at UN bodies. They've been happening at the UN General Assembly. The UN was established after World War II to maintain international peace and security. And despite these words and these calls and these pleas, um, the UN Security Council is at odds at the resolution on the war. The General Assembly can't seem to, to get any traction if it wants it that way. Bijan, what does that tell you about the clout or the lack thereof of the world community right now?
4: Well, international organizations such as the United Nations have been in this deadlock, if we want to call it that, uh, for a while. And it's not limited to this conflict. They have not been able uh, to act as per their mission for for different conflicts, whether it was the civil war in Syria and the atrocities that Bashar al-Assad committed there or the war on Ukraine, the illegal invasion of Russia against Ukraine, or right now this conflict between Israel and Hamas. Now, the General Assembly has been clear in terms of its position in uh, condemning the violence that's happening against the civilians and calling uh, for a cessation of the hostilities of the uh, conflict that is happening. However, the, uh, the United Nations Security Council uh, is, is divided on this issue. And the United States and its allies um, have a strong position in support of Israel's right to defend itself and will continue with that position. And therefore, I do not think that the UN Security Council or the United Nations overall will be able to play a significant role in bringing this, uh, bringing this conflict to an end. At least in that part, it can play a significant role in terms of the humanitarian Uh, Aid and support that it can provide, especially if there are some sort of pauses or ceasefires, but not in bringing this conflict to an end.
0: Roland Paris, I'd like to get your views on the world community, and I I kind of sort of use that in, in quotes, but both of you this morning have said, look, there's only so much countries outside of this conflict and other conflicts can do, really.
3: Well, I would say that with regard to the United Nations, that it is as much a reflection of international politics as a driver of it. It's more of a reflection of it. And there are a few issues in the world that we've seen recently that have been as divisive as this one. That's true here at home, too. It's an incredibly divisive issue. So, yes, the UN is there to try to facilitate international peace and security, but it can't create consensus where there isn't one. Hmm. And there is deep division on this issue internationally.
0: Uh, we will talk about Canada in just a, a minute and the ripple effects that are happening here in our country, happening all around the world, in fact. But before we get to that, Bijan, I just want to talk about the occupied West Bank, which has seen this um, spike, this escalation in violence in the past month. I think overnight, again, uh, two Palestinians in the West Bank were killed. But, you know, we're into the 150 or so that have been killed there in the last month. Emotions there are at a boiling point. What does the world need to try to do at this point to stop the violence in the occupied West Bank?
4: That That is an important question. And uh, for example, two days ago, there was actually a resolution condemning uh, overall the illegal uh, Israeli settlements in the uh, West Bank, uh, which Canada voted against. We can talk more about Canada's position, but Canada was among uh, only seven countries that voted against that uh, resolution with the United Nations. So there needs to be Uh, more pressure and more criticism of Israel. This has nothing to do with Israel's right to defend itself. That is something that, uh, you know, uh, Canada and its allies and most of the Western alliance, they have affirmed, they are supportive of Israel's right to defend itself. But the actions in the West Bank may actually trigger more violence against Israel uh, and bring uh, the West Bank, those occupied territories, uh, to a boiling point, which can actually open another front, in in this conflict which can be very uh, very dangerous uh, and also the the expansion of those settlements and the actions that are being taken by some extremist elements that are that have some support from the israeli government at least from the far right elements in the israeli government in this particular cabinet of uh, prime minister netanyahu uh, those are contrary if we have any vision of achieving a two-state solution at that at, at some point down the road. These sort of actions, expansion of the settlement, the violence that's happening is completely in the opposite direction of achieving a two-state solution mm-hmm. at some point.
0: Okay, let us talk about Canada and, the, and that vote. And I'd like to get both of you to weigh in on this. Uh, Roland, let me begin with you. Canada, as Bijan just said, was one of seven who did not um, vote along the lines of the majority in this. We've seen this in another UN vote Your assessment of what Canada is is doing here, what what our country is trying to say?
3: Uh, Well, I think that Canada has basically aligned itself with the United States and most European countries, perhaps not on that specific vote. But its it's, uh, policy stance, its position regarding this conflict has been really moving along with a group of countries. Uh, and it's not surprising, probably, because I would expect that the phone lines have been burning up between Canadian officials and American officials and European officials, not to mention, I'm sure, Canadian diplomacy in the region uh, trying to speak to the Israelis. Canada has expressed its concern about uh, the extent of civilian harm, about the need for humanitarian assistance to get into Gaza, I would expect, I don't know, but I would expect that those messages are also being communicating communicated to Israel. So I think that, you know, Canada has is essentially within a group of countries that has been struggling to define this position or thread the needle
4: that I was talking about before.
0: And uh, Bijan, what more or differently do you think the Canadian government should be doing right now?
4: Well, one thing I want to be clear, and I think it's important for us Canadians to realize this, is that we are not, uh, in my opinion, we're not a major actor. Canada is not a major actor in the Middle East. So at the end of the day, the position of the Canadian government, what we do with our allies and partners can make a difference, definitely. But our position as a single country with the um, small leverage that perhaps we have, small influence that we have in the region, it cannot change the course of the war. And I hope that we all keep uh, keep this in mind. Uh, especially for some of the sort of the passionate um, things that are happening in the streets of Toronto and uh, other cities across across the country. Uh, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. I, I think we need to advocate, along with our allies and partners, uh, for more humanitarian aid access uh, to Gaza, uh, and to advocate also for the humanitarian pauses. Hopefully, at some point, that can lead to a ceasefire. And also to advocate for the release of the hostages, because I do not think that without the release of, of hostages and some sort of a deal here, uh, we can reach to um, any sort of humanitarian pauses or a ceasefire at the end.
0: Okay, let us talk about what's been happening in our country in the last month. There have been um, huge public outcries across our country. There have been pro-Palestinian rallies. There have been rallies to free uh, the Israeli hostages. Um, And emotions are are very, very high. The other thing that's high um, are the reports of hate crimes that are up in several cities in the last month. Spikes of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. Many, many people are scared and they're worried. We are a country that is filled with different diasporas Is that why, Roland, you think we're seeing such a strong reaction here at home? I know it's being echoed elsewhere, but put this in the Canadian context.
3: I think we're seeing a very similar set of problems in other countries, but it's particularly difficult for a country like Canada where we define ourselves in part by the fact that we have such a multicultural population and that we've found a way to have an incredibly multicultural population and to thrive. And so it puts that kind of uh, social uh, context at some risk. So one concern is social cohesion. Another one is public order. You know, uh, there there are news reports from overnight of gunshots being uh, fired once again Mm. against a Jewish school in Montreal and attempted firebombing against a synagogue previously. So there is a public order dimension to this, too. And as you mentioned, there's an issue of hate speech. So all of these are are, uh, you know, extremely disturbing developments And I regret that, you know, as this military operation continues, those tensions are going to continue to seethe. And it's essential. And I think our political leaders have been doing a good job of sending a calming message, but it's essential that they keep on sending the message that this is unacceptable and that violations of the law, whether it's uh, violations of public order or overt hate speech will be prosecuted. Hmm.
0: So it's interesting that you say, Roland, and Bijan, I want to ask you about this, about the political response to this, because political leaders, as Roland is saying, has been, you know, trying to send the message of keep the calm, try to be calm. The Prime Minister keeps getting asked about it, and his line that he keeps reiterating is, this is not who we are as Canadians. And 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 yet, Bijan, we are seeing not calm, we are seeing violence, we are seeing potential hate speech in in our country. How do you assess what's happening in our country?
4: So, uh, you know, on one hand, there are different groups, different opinions, different communities in this country. uh, We're a multicultural society. So these groups, they have their different opinions and they're exercising their right to free speech, their right to freedom of assembly, to come out on the streets and advocate for their position. This is all uh, fine and and respected in, in our democratic society but then the problem as you and Roland said is this the violence is the uh, is the hate and division that uh, some of the actions of some uh, protesters or some people is creating the rising anti-semitic attacks and 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 islamophobic attacks i should add as well uh, so these are the problems uh, that that are here that needs to be addressed i think um, yes the actions that some of our political leaders have taken Um, is is good. Uh, It helps in calming the situation. However, I think our politicians, our political leaders, I think there are two things that they need to do. One is to avoid any sort of politicization of what's happening. To avoid to, uh, you know, try to basically gain any sort of votes uh, from particular communities. Because really the division, the hatred that's happening is dangerous and can put the security... Uh, of Canadians at risk. So that's one problem. The other issue is I think our political leaders, especially Prime Minister Trudeau, need to speak can- to Canadians in the language of Canadian national interests and explain to Canadians why this is the position that we have about this conflict based on our national interests hmm. and to cr- to try to basically inject that sense of cohesion and and why we need to be together with respect to our position on this conflict as Canadians. That is, I think, something that's missing, and has been missing for a while in our political discourse in Canada, in my opinion.
0: Roland Paris, we've all, um, well many people in the Middle East are living through violence um, over the past month and, and some even before that, but you know, we as Canadians have been waking up for the last month um, to more violence, to waking up to more more of the same. Uh, I only have about a minute left, but Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel says, um, you know, when this is all over, and who knows when that will be, Israel will not um, just get out of Gaza and will go back to October 6. What do you see as an ending to this?
3: Yeah, that's a huge question. And it's the so-called day after question, meaning the day after the end of this military operation. There's no evidence really that Israel has a plan for that yet. And there are different ideas that have been floated. The United States has called for the Palestinian Authority, which currently governs parts of the West Bank, to be put, made responsible for Gaza. But Netanyahu has ruled that out. And the fact is, the Palestinian Authority is has very mm. little credibility among Palestinians anyway. My uh, concern is that Israel might end up governing the uh, governing Gaza for a longer period by default because yeah. nobody else will. And even though I don't think Israel has any interest in governing Gaza, what Netanyahu has said is that, it, that Israel wants a long-term hmm. security control. But the longer-term question is about peace. Yeah. And, you know, we have two populations of indigenous people who claim the same land, and the only solution is for them to find a way to live in two states uh, side by side. We need to get that eventually back on track.
0: Appreciate both of your time and assessments this morning, Roland Paris and Bijan Amadi. thank you very much.
4: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: Roland Paris is a professor and director of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and Bijan Amadi is the executive director of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. For decades, Cree artist Kent Monkman has wanted audiences to think differently about the way Indigenous people are represented in Western art. And that has involved his alter ego, who is named Miss Chief Eagle Testicle. Miss Chief is a gender-fluid, stiletto-wearing kind of trickster who appears heavily in Monkman's work. She can usually be found conferring with ancient Indigenous spirits, seducing figures of Canadian folklore or bearing witness to the horrors that colonization brought to Indigenous communities. But despite Miss Chief showing up in films and paintings, she's never had a distinct story of her own in writing. That is until now. Kent Monkman has teamed up with his longtime creative collaborator, Giselle Gordon, and together they've written the memoirs of Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, a true and exact accounting of the history of Turtle Island. It's a combination of history, fiction, and memoir, and it re-examines some of the most pivotal moments in Canadian history from an Indigenous perspective. Kent and Giselle, hello.
2: Hi, Pia. Thanks for having us. Hi,
6: Pia. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Kent, it's also great to have you back on the show. And um, I know the last time we were you were here, we were talking about mischief, but let's talk about her again. Um, fans of your work will know Miss Chief Eagle Testicle quite well, but for people who don't, who is she to you?
2: Well, I created Miss Chief about 20 years ago when I was trying to find a way to challenge the subjectivity of settler artists like Paul Kane and George Catlin. and their bodies of work um, were all based on their eyes on indigenous land and indigenous people. And I found a way to challenge their work through the ego of the artist. So, you know, as I looked at at each individual artist, you know, I realized how much just you know a career of an artist can influence the kind of work that they make. So, you know, this was the Romantic period, and their stylizations of Indigenous people really fit society's interest in indigenous people and their desire to see something primitive of the past. So in creating Mischief uh, to live inside my paintings, which reference their paintings and the paintings of other settler artists, I created this alter ego that could reverse the gaze and turn the tables, turn the, the, the lens the, you know, um, make paintings of, of settlers and it was a way to introduce a character whose own ego could rival the egos of those artists and the subjectivity of their work and hence the name Eagle Testicle.
0: And so, Kent, when you were painting Mischief, are you at that time like thinking about what the voice would be? Because now you've given voice to the painting in this memoir.
2: At the time, No. I mean, at the time, I really had no idea, you know, h- how this character would unfold. Um, it kind of, you know, the character was kind of created instinctively and kind of grew and developed, uh, over the years. It wasn't until the, uh, shame and prejudice exhibition, um, that I-, I created in 2017. And I, I needed Miss Chief's voice to narrate that exhibition that we really, um, Gave life to her voice, you know, in in a written form, and um, Giselle helped me write the label text, and um, you know, i had been sitting there struggling with trying to write these label texts for a few weeks, and and finally, I think I had two weeks left, and I was like, Giselle, you need to help me, like I can't, <laughs> I can't, I had complete writer's block, and uh, you know, Giselle and I had had co-created. Um, you know, different films and things together. And Giselle is a brilliant writer. So um, when I finally handed it over to Giselle, I was like, Giselle, you know, I know you, I need you. <laughs> and uh, and Giselle was like, why did you wait and give me only two weeks on this? But uh, Giselle did such a beautiful job on these label texts and, you know, um, label writing for museum uh, uh, labels, it, it's just so challenging because you have to get so much Squeezed into like a hundred words or hundred and twenty words or something, and Giselle did such a beautiful job of distilling Mischief's voice into these um, really beautiful, concise uh, texts. And after that project, we were sort of joking, you know, between each other, like, "Oh, Mischief should write a memoir." You know, you know her, this voice has kind of given birth to this idea that that now we can sort of write, you know, in her voice. And it was around that time or shortly after that Scott Sellers from uh, Penguin Random House, uh, Colin Stewart, you know, approached me and said, you know, Kent, you know, loved Shame and Prejudice. Would, would you like to do a book project? And the first thing I said was, well, we're not going to do a book on me. That's really boring. We'll do Mischief's memoir. And, uh, and that's how, that was the beginning of this project.
0: And so, Giselle, since you gave *Mischief* sort of voice, if I can put it that way, how would you describe her?
6: She is very layered and complex, but she's very powerful compared to human beings. And she's very sexy. She's got a great sense of humor. But at the core, she's all about love. Love for all human beings, love for all creatures. And the way that Kent has subverted history in his paintings is often... By playing with love and sexuality and the balance of power embedded in those uh, two aspects, so uh, once we kind of found who she was, she we'd been making films together too. We have a Super Eight trilogy of short films that uh, she was also kind of expanding and growing with all of these projects that we were doing and performance pieces as well with Mischief and uh, installation work. So she kind of grew on her own. And I think Kent's right, with Shame and Prejudice, we really had to figure out a lot about who she was because it wasn't um, vague anymore. Like in the films, it could be a look, it could be a gesture, but with text, you have to be so precise. So we really came at it from a perspective that with love, she was going to tell the story of the violence of colonialism But do it in a way that was also invited people in. And so this is
0: two parts, this memoir. Volume one covers a period from creation of the universe to the Confederation of Canada. Volume two takes us from Confederation to present day, which is a lot of ground to cover. Kent, why did you want to make this so far reaching to spend that amount of time, events, issues, all those things?
2: Well, by the time we started writing the memoir, uh, her her story had had really fleshed out and it was already in the paintings and the paintings really were our jumping off point for the first outline that we created. We printed out, you know, probably every painting I made in the last 20 years um, and just laid them out on the floor and in a long line. And then we started moving them around and putting them into chapters and organizing her story, you know, that way. I had mischief in the colonial period, and I had her sort of in contemporary reality. I had her in the present, so we knew that we had to kind of bring her story, you know, through these at least the last 150 years. But when we went to our um, Cree knowledge keepers, um, specifically one of them, Floyd Fable, who we collaborated with in the past, said she needs a creation story. And so we didn't know where mischief came from. We didn't. We didn't have a creation story. For her. So, this memoir created an opportunity to, to write her creation story, to write the backstory, to have her arriving here on Earth, on, on, on Turtle Island, and the beginning of her story starts there. So, it was really um, an opportunity to fill in gaps in her story, but also to understand who the character was more clearly.
0: It's, it's like you did a prequel. <laughs> right, which is very modern
2: <laughs> yeah and and you know it, it was written as one book but when the when the publisher because they were so committed and 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 loved this project that uh they realized that you know they had they wanted to have full color on every page and and you know giselle and i and with our uh our research assistant sadie mcdonald had done a deep dive into history and we had i think more end notes than we had actual text so <laughs> This book had to get split into two and (laughs) the publisher made that decision, but we wrote it as one story. So volume one really just doesn't really end. It just kind of goes straight into volume two.
0: And Giselle, you're non-Indigenous, so how did you try to get in the head of of Mischief and what was that like for you? You're writing about what she's thinking. How did you sort of adapt yourself and adopt
6: all that? That's a great question. And I think, as any settler working with um, a Cree artist or about anything indigenous, it's really important to know where you belong and what's uh, you know where your where your place is. So it really started with just collaboration. I was very attracted to Kent's art and the way that he thinks. He's just got 10 million ideas every second. It's really hard to keep up with, but it's also really uh, inspiring. And through this long history of collaboration, I've been involved in other aspects, like being on the board of Imaginative. And um, I'm connected by family, now by marriage, um, to Cree communities. So it's just really listening. To everybody, especially Kent. and uh, starting to maybe just think about how to speak in mischief's voice, but really informed by all of our advisors, everything kind of goes in and just trying to just filter it through in a way that makes sense for Mischief as this very powerful, fun and sexy and loving being who guides us through some very, Tough history,
0: and Kent, you have been able through the years through your art to be able to to say things. And I think, tell me if I'm wrong. Sometimes your art can speak for itself. They might not be what Kent Monkman wants to say. And I'm wondering about in this memoir: Are there things that your alter ego, mischief, can say or will say that Kent Monkman won't say or can't say?
2: Well. I mean, mischief is so connected, uh, to who I am, but because she has been around for billions of years, even though she doesn't look that old, <laughs> um, <laughs> she, she has seen if a I lot. If I look
0: that good and... <laughs> at a billion years, I'm good.
2: So, no kidding. so she has seen much more than I have. And, uh, by, by creating a character that is so ancient, that is like this legendary being, yes, she can say things that I can't say because, um, you know, we, we wanted a character that could witness a a very long history. And, and, and we realized that was really one of her functions in my art practice is that she functions as a witness and it's kind of, you know, all these things that she sees happening in history that she sees happening here on this continent, um, you know, she can reflect back on. So a lot of the memoir is like her also thinking Back of like, oh, that reminds me of the time that so and so, you know, hatched this crazy plan um, to, you know, remove children. And then she sees the 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 course of history, um, see how how this impacts, you know, those decisions that were made in the 19th century, how they impact our, you know, our indigenous people today. So um, there's there's a lot, you know, that we were able to bring out of creating that character, and there was some you know, a lot of figuring out of what the limitations of her powers would be as well. So, um, you know, we started writing based on that outline we made with the paintings, but then there were points where we just kind of stopped and said, okay, the only way we're going to understand how she's going to respond to this or what her action would be is to really know what her purpose is. And so those were the, the tough questions that arose during the writing of the book.
0: And so you two have been working together for a long time, collaborating. I should actually say you three, because Miss Chief, <laughs> seems, you know, off the page, off the canvas, larger than life, like she's with you, too. Is that fair all the time, kind of in conversation? Very accurate. Probably,
2: yeah, very much.
0: Okay, so what are you, because you guys are all pals and you're collaborators, and I'm wondering, we've talked about Miss Chief, and you, you can both weigh in on what you learned about her, but what did you learn about each other as well through this process?
6: The way we started to tell the story, as Kent said, was through the storyboard we made with the images. And then I suggested, let's unpack each painting one at a time. And the level of depth of references, art history references, colonial history references, Cree uh, perspective and worldview references that are in each painting would take us probably four hours of a deep dive and conversation to unpack all of the metaphors and references in each painting. So I, I had known that there was a lot in them, but that was kind of, you could really write a PhD on every single individual painting.
2: Those sessions made me really grumpy.
6: <laughs> That's also true. Don't Giselle, just another Giselle. thing I learned was make sure Kent has snacks. And especially mischief. She really needs
2: Giselle. snacks. Giselle would come over to the studio and sit me down and just like, you know, pour over these paintings and just like, you know, rake me over the coals of what's this and what's that? And you know, um, I had answers for those things, but uh, it, it was a way for Giselle to really um, download, you know, what was in my brain around each painting. And I guess what I learned from Giselle is just like she's just such a good writer. You know, her little spidey sense will tingle, you know, if there's something <laughs> going in the right direction. And I think she's, she's, she, we both have learned to rely on that, you know, and it's like, well, bad ideas around, And then, you know, just having a collaborator. I mean, there's a lot of artists out there, I think, that should have strong, trusted collaborators. Their work would be so much stronger. And I'm so grateful that I have someone like Giselle who trusts me and I trust her because, um, you know, Giselle won't be shy about saying, "Hmm, you know, that doesn't work. And I'll I'll tell her the same thing. And I think um, it makes the work stronger. And um, Giselle is a settler. You know, she has a settler perspective that she can also help me bring my work to a wider audience, you know, understanding that there's something very special and unique in this perspective, but also it's like, okay, we're going to write it um, so that an audience can understand what is, what you're actually talking about. And I think we both wanted uh, to find a way to connect with uh, the widest audience possible. And um, that was certainly something that drove my own art practice for many years. And I think um that Giselle uh, just is, is just a great editor and helps me take those, you know, millions of ideas and kind of like, you know, focus them down into something. And I think that was really something that um, really made the 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 book possible is like, just like bringing it and, and, and steering it along.
0: What surprised you? And maybe nothing. So feel free not to say nothing surprised me, Pia, but like for each of you did anything surprise you? Cause sometimes again, when you're creating characters, they take on a life of their own, despite it's your input. So was there anything that surprised you about Mischief?
2: I I don't know if we were so much surprised as we, we we really made some wonderful discoveries along the way in terms of really um, understanding her her motivations. I, I think it was just such a, lear- a great learning experience for us too, because even though I'm Cree, I didn't grow up speaking Cree, and, and one of the things we wanted with this book is to really ground... Um, this story in in Cree uh, language and and the understanding of of our cosmos, our you know our Cree cosmology and our values. And so the book has really um, given us an opportunity to have you know close relationships with our knowledge keepers to learn more about the language. That's that's just been a really um, a great takeaway from this project was just like how deeply we, we needed to go.
0: And so maybe I'll ask the question in this way Was maybe not what surprised you as you created this, but were there things that you had discovered about Miss Chief that before you were like, didn't really like, not just know that about her, but didn't understand her in this way.
6: Definitely earlier in Kent's paintings and the other projects that we did together, we had thought of her as more all-powerful, like really with um, unlimited kind of power. But as we were writing, we realized, oh, that can't be possible because if she had that power, of course she would have stopped the removal of children, the genocide that happened, the all of the horrors that were inflicted upon her people and all nations here. So that was something we had to really figure out. And we hadn't thought about that before is how um a legendary being would respond to this kind of violence and in the end it breaks her and she does lose her power for a while so that's this but yeah that that was something that we had to um don't give away the book she okay i won't say anything else you have to read it (laughs) okay but just to pick up She didn't give
0: away the book, Kent, but, like, there are hard (laughs) themes. These histories are hard. And so, and and I think, you know, in case anyone didn't hear you both off the top, this is funny, this is irreverent, this is sexy, it's provocative. And yet it's about difficult subject matter. We in our country are having difficult conversations about our histories, our collective histories. How did you strike the balance in tone and character and what role did humor really serve here? Like, what did you want to do through humor?
2: That's a great question, too, because that is exactly uh, something that we struggled with. And, and, you know, there's so much humor and irreverence in, 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 in Cree storytelling. And, and we wanted to embed Cree thinking. And that, that comes along with a good dose of humor into this book. But, um, you know, uh, with my Being Legendary project at the Royal Ontario Museum, Um, One of the things I wanted to achieve there was a connection to how how long we've been here as indigenous people. And the colonial period only represents a very short period of that time. So as we were writing those uh, colonial chapters, um, the way we were able to sort of create this continuity and bring the humor in was by uh, creating this strong relationship of mischief to the other legendary beings like Wasagachuk, Mimiguesuak, the little people. And it was through her, uh, and being embedded in, in Cree, uh, you know, with the other legendary beings that the humor just, it comes and and erupts sometimes in these moments where there there shouldn't be any humor. And it's, it's a way, it was a way for us to balance and, and to bring, um, you know, Cree storytelling, uh, into some of these dark chapters because, you know, traditional Cree stories all came from a time before the settlers were even here. So, you know, in this last 150 years, you know, what was Wasagachuk up to, you know? And so Miss Chief had to go looking for him sometimes. And I don't want to give away, you know, what happens in the book, but she does find him. And she, there are moments where she reconnects with Wasagachuk and, and she finds how she finds where, where Wasagachuk is and the Mimiguesuak are still there. And, um, so it was a way of really stitching together, um, the past and the present and the future all, all through this way of um, you know aligning the, the legendary beings as part of the story.
6: And when we sent the first draft to our four Cree Metia advisors, this was one thing they unanimously all said, more funny, more sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. We just listened to them and we concentrated so much on history that uh, we need to find the jokes. We need to add the Playfulness back. That's so much in Cree storytelling, as Kent was just saying.
0: Hmm.
6: What's next for Mischief?
2: Well, she's actually appearing for this book tour in six Canadian cities, and then um, she's going to take a little holiday on a beach somewhere. <laughs>
6: She's earned it. She's
0: earned it. Fair enough. Thank you both. It's fascinating. We, you know, we wonder sometimes what what's Monkman going to do next. So um, this was really lovely to see this all coming to life. And thank you both for joining us today. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having us, Pia. Kent Monkman is a Cree artist. Giselle Gordon is a media artist and writer. And their new book is called The Memoirs of Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, A True and Exact Accounting of the History of Turtle Island. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. Yesterday marked Remembrance Day, an occasion when many stories are shared about veterans from various wars through our history. Now, it's known that many Canadians crossed the border to sign up with United States Armed Forces to fight in Vietnam. About 12,000 served in combat roles and 134 died. But fewer Canadians know about our country's peacekeeping role in Vietnam. Nearly 2,000 Canadians went there to observe different peace accords between 1954 and 1973. Aaron Moore's grandfather was among them. Aaron's a journalism instructor at the Nova Scotia Community College. She's also a former CBC reporter. Aaron, hi. Hi, Pia. Tell me about your grandpa. Who was he? What was he like?
7: His name was Douglas Babineau. He was a really warm person, full of hugs. Not a big talker, but he played a big role in my life because I was his only grandchild. And I remember him as a very safety-conscious person. He took me to all of my orthodontist appointments, for example, and if it was going to rain on the day of an appointment, I remember that we had to leave hours early because he was so worried about hydroplaning. And that kind of caution really stands in contrast to so much of his earlier life when he took a lot of risks, like the year he spent in Vietnam in the middle of the war.
0: And so how did he end up in Vietnam? Like, how did he end up going?
7: Right. Well, he was uh, a career Navy man, and he actually joined when he was 15. He lied about his age. He was in World War II and Korea. And so by the 60s, he actually had uh, quite a high rank, and he was asked to go as a peace observer. And my mom tells me that, that at the time he was looking forward to it. He thought it would be an adventure, I guess. But it turned out, I think, to be a lot more than that for him.
0: And so, Erin, you said, look, my grandpa wasn't a man of of a lot of words. A lot of people of his generation were not. But did he ever talk to you about his experience in in Vietnam?
7: No, he didn't. And I unfortunately never asked him about it. And I think that's, you know, because in school I was learning about World War II. So I did ask him about World War II and he did talk about it. But I didn't learn anything about Canadians in Vietnam. So unfortunately, uh, never had a chance to ask him the questions that I should have.
0: Which brings you to your motivation for doing this documentary you've made, yeah?
7: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I really want, wanted to find out what he was doing there um, and what it was like. And in my research, it led me to this whole other group of veterans who were also in Vietnam as peace observers just a few years after he was there. And I decided that when I was hearing their stories that more Canadians needed to hear these stories because this is just not a well-known part of our history
0: well let's just do that here is aaron moore's documentary tons love doug
8: sunday november 15th 1964 saigon hi hon time now is about eight fifteen sunday morning saturday your time we arrived here at 5 p.m on thursday after a two and a half hour trip up from hong kong i'm still having difficulty sleeping and eating This morning, I was awake at 5 a.m., so I got up and showered and dressed and read a while. These are the adjustments we all have to make out here. Apparently, it takes about two weeks. On arrival, they had a reception for us where we were introduced to all of the team officers. They are a most friendly group.
7: This was my grandfather's first letter home to his wife, my grandmother, when he arrived in Vietnam in 1964. I've asked my partner to read it. My grandfather was 45, same age as I am now. He was a senior officer, Lieutenant Commander Douglas Babineau.
8: I will be on fixed team site Saigon. This duty entails daily patrols to harbors, airports, and outlying areas. In most cases, the patrols to outlying areas, which are 10 to 20 miles, are restricted due to one thing or another. I start my work officially next Thursday the 19th. I'll do this duty for a two-week period and then off to the north for a month.
7: My grandfather knew from the outset that he would be stationed in Vietnam for a year as part of Canada's role as a peace observer, though there wasn't a lot of peace to observe.
8: We're living on the sixth floor of the Hotel Katina. At night, you can hear the gunfire outside of Saigon. Also, you can see the napalm bombs exploding off in the distance, probably about 20 miles away. Funny business, this.
7: My mother gave me these letters a few years ago. She found them cleaning out her basement. There are 154 of them, mostly written on translucent airmail paper, and they feel fragile in my hands when I unfold them.
8: Well, hon, I will close for now and mail this. I miss you and Jackie very much. I love you all. Tons love, Doug. I'm
9: not
7: sure when I was
9: last here. But it has been a long time.
7: I'm at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. I wish my grandfather could be with me here, but he died 20 years ago. So I'm meeting up with another veteran from Canada's Commissions in Vietnam.
9: My name is Charles Simmons. I was involved in the planning, initially as a senior operations officer. I served about five or six weeks as a regional commander and eventually end up as Deputy Chief of Staff Operations.
7: Charlie reminds me of my grandfather. He's 88 years old, wearing a brown suit and tie. He still has the air of authority of a senior military official, but it's softened by his warm smile and a genuine twinkle in his eye. A curator at the War Museum has told me there's a plaque here mentioning Canada's participation in Vietnam, so Charlie and I go looking for it. A young attendant offers to help.
4: Are you looking
7: for a section in particular?
4: We're just looking for the Vietnam section. Uh, so Canada actually didn't participate in the Vietnam War. There is a section that talks about... Uh,
2: some just, this this man recovery. was
7: there, <laughs> so that's where we're going. <laughs> I see. Well, I can
2: bring
7: you to... This reaction is actually pretty typical. So I explained to the attendant that Charlie was part of the International Commission for Control and Supervision.
4: I don't know it off the top of my head. Let me call some of my colleagues, but I imagine it will be a...
7: Okay. Yep. It's so interesting to me right yeah. now, Charlie, that he doesn't know
1: where this is. No,
9: no. Yeah, very few people know about uh about And I mean, our, the, the fact that we were there since 1954 is not well known either. I mean, very, very few people know anything about
7: it. But there is a plaque, and we do eventually find it.
9: Here we are, right here.
7: What does it say?
9: 1954 to 1975, hundreds of Canadians served in two international missions in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, supervising ceasefire agreements and in the 1950s preparing for national elections.
7: Okay, so John, just say your name and your title. Across town from the museum, I meet up with one of the few people who has deep knowledge of Canada's military role in Vietnam. John McFarlane.
10: I'm a historian at the Directorate of History and Heritage in the Department of National Defense.
7: John has been researching the official history for more than a decade.
10: Yeah, so in 1954, there was a Geneva conference that was called to help France leave. And France wanted to leave because they got clobbered and they understood that their colonial period was passed in Indochina.
7: An international commission was created to oversee the handover from French to Vietnamese control. The countries chosen to oversee that peaceful transition were Canada, Poland, and India. So
10: Canada was selected. They didn't volunteer. It was considered they were the most appropriate to represent the Western side.
7: When my grandfather arrived in Saigon, peace observers like him had been coming and going for a decade. After the French left, North and South Vietnam were partitioned, with a plan to unify after elections were held. But nationwide elections never happened. The U.S., worried the communists would win, increased their presence in the country, and started pushing for the South to become independent. That's the part of the story most people know. American troops landing in South Vietnam and fighting a long, costly, deadly battle with the North. So by the time my grandfather arrived, Vietnam was far from the peaceful, unified country envisaged by the Geneva Accords. Instead, Vietnam was at war. My grandfather's main job was to look out for illegally imported weapons and to investigate any violations.
8: Thursday, November 19th, 1964, Saigon. This morning I did my first official day's work. They called the inspection control. First we go to the Saigon docks where we drive up the docks one way and down the docks in the opposite direction. All the while the Indian colonel is taking down the names of the ships. Then we pile into vehicles and off we go to the Saigon airport where we carry out a similar type of inspection.
7: From his letters I can tell that my grandfather was stationed all over. They're postmarked from Saigon in the south, and small towns and outposts, all the way up to Hanoi in the north.
8: March 20th, 1965. Hanoi. I went for a walk the other day and saw at several places around town, store windows, billboards, etc. Pictures of the American pilots who were captured subsequent to being shot down during the bombing raids. The North Vietnamese are making full use of the propaganda value of these prisoners. I feel very sorry for these three pilots, as they do not have prisoner of war rights, as officially, USA is not at war with North Vietnam. What they will eventually do with them is anyone's guess.
7: Not just American warplanes were getting shot down. One used by the International Commission that my grandfather had flown on was shot down in 1965.
8: October 21st, 1965. Nha Trang. Hi, hon. This morning at 7.30 a.m., I was listening to the news when they announced that the ICC plane en route to Hanoi was missing. Three Canadians were on board. As I write this now, I don't know who the three Canadians are, and I'm waiting with a heavy heart to find out. We are a very small group out here, and I know I will have lost a personal friend. They are still searching for the plane, which is down somewhere in the jungles, Laos or North Vietnam. It has been missing since 3.30 p.m. Tuesday the 19th. I've traveled many times in this plane.
7: Another letter is dated just a few days later.
8: As yet, they haven't found the plane. The Canadians lost were one sergeant, one corporal, and one external affairs civilian. The area you fly over on the way to Hanoi is a mountainous jungle, so they may never find it. I understand they've given up the search. The civilian that was killed was married in June and only had two weeks with his wife before departing for Vietnam.
7: My grandfather was in Vietnam from November 1964 to November 1965. I couldn't find any veterans who served during those early years. Those still living are from Canada's final commission in 1973. Historian John McFarland says that by this point the U.S. was desperate to get out. And to get the United States
10: out was in the interest of everyone.
7: The warring parties signed the Paris Peace Accords, an agreement that called for a ceasefire and the withdrawal of all U.S. troops within 60 days. But that couldn't happen without international help.
10: They had to have a commission that would supervise the peace agreement. And Canada wanted no part of it, but the United States... Convince them to go for a few months. So Canada was able to help America get out and save the lives of the, the prisoners.
7: By then, Canadian peace observers had been in Vietnam for 19 years, but the new peace agreement called for a new international effort and a whole new group of Canadians were sent over.
9: Uh, if that's where the, the action is, that's where you want to be.
7: Charlie Simmons, who I was with at the War Museum, was one of those Canadians who went in 1973.
9: Very simply, we were to supervise and control the implementation of the agreement, which included uh, the cessation of hostilities, a ceasefire, the withdrawal of the American and other Allied troops, the Koreans, the Australians, the release and return of prisoners of war uh, and civilian detainees. And ultimately, the supervision of elections, of free elections.
7: The Canadians were joined by troops from Poland, Hungary, and Indonesia, all working as peace observers. Many of these Canadian veterans are still alive. I'm at a historic brick building in downtown Ottawa. It's a military mess hall. Inside, there's a bar to one side. To the other, long dining tables are set under a high ceiling. Tonight, 17 veterans from the 1973 commission and their wives are here. There are warm handshakes and inside jokes.
9: (laughs) How you
11: doing? Have you got any cheese that you can send up the way for me? (laughs)
7: They've been gathering nearly every year for the past 50 years, traveling across Canada to see old friends, the only other people who remember what they went through. I see that Charlie's here. He's telling his comrades about our trip to the war museum.
9: Well, we're known, and the young man was apologizing because he didn't know anything about this. And I said, you're just 99.9% of the Canadian population. They have no idea we remember that. (laughs)
7: I'm not the only one here trying to change that. Rory Corey, the curator of Calgary's military museums, has been doing oral history interviews with the veterans while they're here in Ottawa.
12: They've sort of become forgotten veterans, um, and you know that's that's one of my main thrusts as a curator. Since I've been at the military museums in 2006, I try and give recognition to underrecognized groups of veterans.
7: It's getting harder and harder for the veterans to make this trip because of their age, so not everyone can be here tonight.
11: My name is Fabian Farrell. I'm from Gloucester, Nova Scotia. Went to Vietnam in 1973. I called in and went in. She said, you're heading to Vietnam tomorrow morning. You know, you talk talking about fast. That was fast. I thought, you know, this is part of her job. And we'll see what happens, you know. I never dwelt on, you know, getting killed.
7: Fabian Farrell was a military police officer. He was based at the International Commission's headquarters in Saigon.
11: Just before we landed, you know, we get a pistol and ammunition. And I know, well, this is the, this is the real thing, because they never give that They're pretty safety cautions, you know.
7: Soon after arriving, Fabian found himself face-to-face with the casualties of war.
11: On a day-to-day basis, we, we started operating uh, an operation center. If you had somebody injured or whatnot coming from the helicopter pad, getting them from the helicopter pad into the hospital and getting them back.
7: That was just one of the roles Canadians would play.
12: In my mind, the whole name of the game was to get the American Prisoner of War out of there.
7: The Canadians and their partners conducted more than 30,000 Prisoner of War exchanges while they were there in 1973. 504 of them were Americans.
12: These are Prisoner of War going on to a herk.
7: Frank Bryant is showing me photos he took of prisoners of war boarding a helicopter.
12: I was in Vietnam in 1973 as a member of the prisoner of war exchange teams.
7: Frank also couldn't go to the reunion. He's 83 and lives in Middleton, Nova Scotia.
12: I really remember there was one plane load that I released that was multiple amputees. Some with no arms and no legs. They they come out of... uh, a hospital and, and the like, and and uh, um, the American that was on the gate just stood there and cried. He says, we did this.
7: One of the prisoners they got out?
12: John McCain.
7: John McCain, the former U.S. senator and presidential candidate. He was held for five years as a POW.
12: But anyway, get the Americans out, and we did that. But uh, we didn't stop the war. The war was still going on while we were there, and, and we watched it as it Unfolded, and um, we had these people out there. We had a plane shot down with a Canadian on board, and uh, we lost a life because of it.
7: Another aircraft. This one in 1973, Canadian Armed Forces Captain Charles Laviolette was one of eight killed when an aircraft carrying members of the International Commission was shot down. The event shook Frank, just as a similar incident had shaken my grandfather in '65.
12: And it was a whole different ball game when we flew after that. I had a flak vest on, I had one over my, and I sat on one. But we were, well, I was scared, I guess, the honest thing, when we flew afterwards, you know?
7: The death was a turning point. Historian John McFarlane says it challenged the Canadian government's resolve to remain in Vietnam.
10: Canada was, was sent, and the official line, the intention, was that they were going to observe a peace. But when you have a casualty, a death, then that confirms that there's no peace. So it's a very different situation if Canada is in a war zone compared to Canada being in the middle of a ceasefire. At some point they said, "Okay, that's it, we're out, we'll stay another certain period of time, but that was a big part of it.
7: But they weren't out yet. Less than a month before Canada would pull out, two Canadian captains were captured and taken prisoner.
5: My name is Fletcher Thompson, and I served with the ICCS in 1973.
7: Fletcher Thompson was one of those captains.
5: We had planned to go on a reconnaissance visit to three of the the villages within our area where we'd been before. On a previous occasion, we'd actually encountered the Viet Cong, these men with guns at the side of the road in a rubber plantation area. And we identified ourselves with our interpreters, and they said, fine, because we didn't have weapons. We weren't posing a threat to them at all. On this occasion, they said okay, we have to hold you until we get direction from our headquarters.
7: Fletcher seems almost emotionless as he describes this. I can't tell if it's because it was so long ago and he's processed it, or if that's just what you have to do to survive. The Canadians were separated from their interpreters, then marched through the jungle from one province to the next. They were marched with nooses around their necks.
5: Part of what they wanted us to do was to write a statement and sign it to acknowledge that they controlled that part of the country. And he said, I'm a captain. This is way beyond my pay grade. I can't do that. So we'd have these sort of interrogation ses- sessions for at least an hour every day where they'd come back again and say, Here's what we need you to sign. But uh, there, there was no thought of trying to escape into the jungle. They had their weapons and were, were watching us uh, throughout. And eventually, they managed to negotiate our release. But it was 18 days later. And uh, we were fed the same as they ate. But I managed to lose about 25 pounds in that period of time. The doctor told me it was a good thing I didn't stay too much longer, just because of the fact that I'd lost weight and this the stress of the situation.
7: The stress of the situation was something all of the veterans experienced. Fletcher, Frank, Charlie, Fabian, my grandfather were in a war zone, trying to keep a peace that didn't exist and witnessing suffering they could do little to alleviate. Suffering that the locals lived every day as their homes and cities were devastated. In 1964, my grandfather wrote from Haiphong in North Vietnam.
8: Most houses have no water. They draw it from a tap on the sidewalk. The few stores there are have absolutely nothing in them. The people are dressed very poorly, most have patches on patches. The majority wear sandals made out of used car tires. No cars at all, just cars for the officials. It reminds me of a city which has been hit by an atom bomb, and they're starting all over again.
12: It was unreal the damage that had been done by American bombs. You know, and uh, it's just terrible, the destruction that was wrought on that country.
8: September 16th, 1965. Guignan. This town has some pitiful sights. There are 90,000 refugees who have fled from the communist controlled area. They pose a mighty big problem no houses to put them in. They're living all over town in cardboard and tin lean-tos, no sanitary facilities. The government is working like mad to help them, but the problem is tremendous.
11: All of this chaos and everything, you're you're looking at women just trying to feed their kids. And I I, I remember a woman there um, in downtown Saigon, I was going down walking. And she was pointing to her breasts and she, she said, No, no, it was French, eh? Like, no milk, no milk. I, I, I got that much, eh? But, you know, that, that, that was She was starving to death and her kid was going to die just because of the lack of no milk. But you look at it and you say, Is there any, any sense to this whole thing? It doesn't matter who wins or who loses, you know? It was just craziness, and 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 I think it—the first time in my life—really come to that. There's no real justice. There's no sense of fairness. There's no sense of anything. It's just who's ever the biggest and strongest uh, survives.
7: Of all the veterans I met, Fabian Farrell was the most open about the toll the experience took on him.
11: I got into trouble drinking, and I think a lot of it started in Vietnam. Hey. It, it, I wasn't aware of it, but, but drinking just blocked everything out. You, you just want to forget it.
7: Canada pulled out of Vietnam two years before the end of the war. Between 1954 and 1973, about 2,000 Canadians served in Vietnam in a peace-observing role. The last commission, in 1973, after the Paris Peace Accords, lasted just six months the servicemen returned home to little fanfare. Charlie Simmons.
9: When we came home, we landed in Vancouver. There was no press. There was no uh, fuss or bother. The, the General Dextras was there to welcome us back and thank us for the work we'd done and things, but that was it. I, I feel that, that there was not enough respect given to this commission, not even within the military. I mean,
7: And once the Canadians were home, Charlie says the public just wanted to move on from an unpopular war.
9: I guess nobody likes being associated with failure because it, uh, you know, the Vietnam War itself was a mark of the, the failure and it had been going on since the 60s.
7: It's part of the reason these veterans have been forgotten, the shame and stigma of the war, that and the fact that so few Canadians served there. But Charlie says they did make a difference. The prisoner exchanges prove it.
9: And so I think, you know, we left there very proud of what we had
3: accomplished.
7: Back at the reunion in Ottawa, the 17 veterans wear suits and ties, some with military medals pinned to their jackets. Charlie Simmons looks forward to this yearly get-together with friends who know the history firsthand.
9: You renew old friendships and... uh, we all retell old war stories, which we've probably told everybody a dozen times already. But uh, more importantly, we get to see how our, our old friends are, uh, are getting along and surviving in spite of all the vicissitudes of life.
7: When everyone is assembled, the chatter quiets uh, down, and Fletcher Thompson takes Kandel the mic. He was one Artists of the captains taken prisoner in Vietnam. Kandel
5: Vietnam. Kandel now
7: he heads Fault the Veterans Association.
5: I have a listing of 123 who I know have passed away. And I'm sure there are a lot more than that that I haven't uh, been made aware of.
7: And Fletcher has some news. This year, they've decided, will be their last uh, reunion.
5: ...seniors, so that uh, this will be the the last of our events of this nature, and uh, certainly uh, appreciate everybody being here, and uh,
9: have a pleasant social time this evening.
7: It's a bittersweet end of an era.
9: I I think you always regret, quote, the last, but... uh, I'm 88 years old, so I'm not sure how many more I'd be attending anyway.
7: <laughs> Rory Corey, the curator of Calgary's military museums, knows it could be his last chance to record some of their stories for his archives.
12: We, we want to preserve that story. We want to carry that story forward and, you know, really show the world that Canada had a role to play and that it was an official role as well that, that uh, people don't know about.
11: Oh, I think it changed my whole life. Even today. You know, I, I, I don't believe in a good guy or a bad guy. You know, it's, it's only a, a dream, you know?
7: From his letters, I can tell that my grandfather's time there changed him too.
8: April 15th, 1965, Saigon. They say that in every experience there's a lesson learned. And my experience out here has made me realize how important your family is. Sometimes, when you're home, you can't see the woods for the trees, and you're inclined to take people for granted. This all adds up to the fact that I am counting the days to getting back to you all. I love and miss you very much. Tons love, Doug.
0: That story was produced by Aaron Moore. Thank you, Aaron, as well as in collaboration with CBC's Audio Documentary Unit. And with that, we have come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine Podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Rhonda Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technician Emily Caravaggio and studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer is Daniel Grogan. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia I Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine Podcast.